Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle greenfield Feig. On this week's episode, I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Alyssa Monas, Associate Veterinarian at the Virginia Aquarium and Marine Science Center. Dr. Monas is going to talk about her research looking into euthanasia protocols for blue crabs. So without further ado, Alyssa, welcome to Aquadox. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm really excited today to talk about your research and your experience with a residency program. But before we get there, can you share with our listeners a story about how you got to where you are today? Definitely. So I actually started my interest in marine science and marine biology as a high school student. So I was in a marine biology camp over the summer and had an experience where I had an opportunity to be involved in sea turtle nest surveillance and release of some baby sea turtles, which was just really inspiring. I was immediately drawn to working with sea turtles in the future, wanted to continue to have marine science and biology be a part of my career. And so ultimately ended up going to the University of Miami for a bachelor's degree in marine science and biology. During my time there, I worked in a coral reef ecology laboratory and so did a lot of research, took a lot of really interesting classes, and ultimately decided that a PhD was probably not going to be the path for me. I really enjoyed doing research, but I didn't want that to be the focus of my career. And so had a little bit of interest and background in the medical field. My dad is a family practitioner in human health. And so took some pre-med classes during undergrad as well, and also took some pre-vet prerequisite classes. And so started shadowing a veterinarian and became interested in veterinary medicine and thought it could be a way for me to combine my interests in marine science and medicine. And so ultimately went to veterinary school at University of Illinois. As you can imagine, there's not a ton of opportunities for aquatic animal medicine in the middle of the cornfields, but did use my breaks to explore those opportunities as a student. Went on to do a small animal rotating internship at the University of Tennessee, then did a specialty zoological medicine internship at Cornell University, and then went on to do my residency at North Carolina State University, where I was an aquatics-focused resident in their zoological medicine residency program. Since then, I've started as the associate veterinarian at Virginia Aquarium, where I'm really enjoying my job. And that's kind of how I got where I am today. That's amazing. And congratulations on finishing your residency and with boards. That's a huge accomplishment. Thank you. It's definitely been a lot, but I've enjoyed every minute of it. I've had a lot of really fun adventures along the way and a lot of really unique opportunities that I'm grateful for. I'm sure. I mean, you started with coral. Now you're at the aquarium where where you've shared with me that you've done some necropsies on humpbacks and right whales. So really, you go from tiny little zooxanthellae, tiny little things on coral to giant whales, really everything there. It's true. And as I've been going through, there are still those moments that hit me when I am working with a stranded sea turtle or the really cool, interesting case or interesting species where I I think 10-year-old me would be pretty excited (laughs) to know what I'm currently up to. Oh my gosh. Current me is excited to hear what you're up to now. (laughs) Now, one of the things I wanted to highlight today was a recent study that you published with some amazing collaborators, including Dr. Craig Harms, another ACZM diplomat, Dr. Julie Balco, an anesthesiologist, and Ashlyn Hennef, a veterinary student. The study looks at effective methods of euthanasia for blue crabs, and I think it's a really good opportunity to highlight the importance of our invertebrate friends, as well as how best we can take care of them. 
Definitely. And invertebrate welfare is really a field that is growing and moving forward quickly. So invertebrates are very important, whether it be seafood industry or in research or an aquarium display, everything from corals to octopus to mussels and clams and crabs and lobsters. There's hundreds of thousands of species. And for a veterinarian, it's really interesting because all those species are so different. And so I got interested in invertebrate welfare starting as a undergraduate student working with corals, but I've always kind of been interested in continuing to work with them throughout my career. And so my research with blue crabs specifically stemmed from an interest in essentially exploring anesthesia and euthanasia for those species. When we talk about the term euthanasia in veterinary medicine, euthanasia means good death. And so it's essentially a way to alleviate suffering. And it's characterized by the American Veterinary Medical Association as a death that is rapid, painless, reliable, safe, and minimizes fear and distress. And so with this emergence in an interest in invertebrate welfare, with evidence suggesting that invertebrates may even feel pain or stress or adverse stimuli, prospective investigations of euthanasia are still lacking. And so especially in crustaceans, a lot of the methods that are used to euthanize other aquatic invertebrates don't necessarily work for them. And so I became interested in trying to fill that hole in the literature literature by seeing what we could investigate to safely provide a good death for those animals. And it's interesting you're looking at new protocols for euthanasia for specific species. We had Dr. Waltina Zahn, Episode 7, Ethics and Sea Stars, where she talks about some of the unethical experimentation done on sea stars. So thank you to you and everyone else for looking into these species and ensuring that they do have a good death. Right, exactly. And it also just gets interesting when you consider the incredible biodiversity of all the different species that are the aquatic invertebrates. And when you look at the guidelines from the AVMA or the American Veterinary Medical Association on euthanasia for those species, there's just a general guideline. And it's two or three sentences about how to euthanize an aquatic invertebrate, when in reality, many species react differently to different medications or different doses of those medications. And so there's a lot of opportunity for research to advance the welfare for those species. So why don't you go ahead and explain to our listeners the different methods that you were using for the study? Sure. Essentially, in the AVMA guidelines for euthanasia for aquatic invertebrates, they recommend a two-step procedure because it's difficult for a lot of these species to really confirm death. You may not always be able to assess a heart rate or brain activity or things like that to determine whether or not the animal has died. And so for first step, generally that step is the one that induces anesthesia, makes the animal completely non-responsive to anything else that's going on, followed by a second step that actually destroys the brain or the major neurologic system for that individual, either physically or chemically. And so for crabs specifically, I was evaluating eugenol, which is also known as clove oil. It's essentially an aromatic oil that has been used to anesthetize fish and other aquatic species historically. And there are some studies in crabs, not yet blue crabs, looking at specific doses for what could be used for anesthesia. So we started with eugenol immersion. So putting that medication into the water with the crab prior to exploring second steps. So the goal of my research was really to investigate a few different drugs for second step euthanasia of the blue crabs. So I looked at 
lidocaine, which is a sodium channel blocker. It's a very common local anesthetic that's used both in human and veterinary medicine and has also been investigated for euthanasia when injected into the cardiovascular system or the heart directly. I also looked at ivermectin, which is a deworming medication that is used to kill parasites and has actually been used in fish farm settings to kill crustacean parasites. So that's sort of where the idea to use ivermectin for second step euthanasia in a crustacean or a crab came from. And then I also looked at potassium chloride, which is a potassium salt that has also been used across many different species for second step of euthanasia because it's essentially causes cardiac arrest falling administration. And so we anesthetized the blue crabs and then we evaluated those three different medications for injection into the hemolymph or the cardiac system of the crabs to determine the effectiveness of those different medications for second step of euthanasia. Gotcha. And for the sedation, you mentioned that you were using clove oil. For a lot of folks who are just starting out or those listening who aren't specializing in aquatics, the one thing they know is anesthesia is tricane methyl sulfate or MS222. So why clove oil instead? Great question. There have been some studies investigating MS222 in a lot of different aquatic invertebrate species and in crustaceans, and it just does not seem to have the same effect that it does in fish, at least not at doses that have been investigated. So again, whenever we talk about drugs working or not working in a species, it could just be that we haven't investigated high enough doses for those individuals. But for the most part, it seems that MS222 has not been efficacious for anesthesia of crustaceans and many other other aquatic invertebrates. You also just mentioned that you would be injecting into the hemolymph. Can you describe what that is? Yes. So when we think of quote unquote blood that would be present in the circulatory system of an aquatic invertebrate, they actually have a substance called hemolymph. So it's a similar fluid, but instead of having iron as the pigmentation that causes red blood cells to be red, they have a pigment called hemocyanin, which actually causes the blood or the liquid in the circulatory system to be blue. So their blood is a very bright blue color. It's one of the coolest facts about them. And the first time that you do an injection and you're pulling back and all of a sudden you get something blue. It's pretty cool. So what were your control groups like for the study? So we randomly assigned our crabs into four different treatment groups. And so there was a group for crabs that were going to be injected with lidocaine, crabs to be injected with potassium chloride, crabs to be injected with ivermectin. And then there was a group that was just injected with saline, which is just a physiologic fluid that would not be expected to cause any sort of effect on those animals. After we injected each crab, we then tried to recover it. So if you remember, we anesthetized the crabs before we injected them. Then we placed them in anesthetic-free water and monitored them for a period of time to make sure that they weren't going to wake up. And that's how we could confirm that they had actually passed or considered effectively euthanized. So the crabs in our control group that were just injected with saline did wake up when we moved them to anesthesia-free water. You kind of highlighted this earlier. It's hard to figure out, is this animal actually dead? And I know turtles, for example, can hold their breaths for a really long time. And that makes it difficult to know, are they just heavily sedated or not? So how were you able to actually confirm that these animals had indeed passed away from the euthanasia method? 
So in order to assess whether or not we had fully anesthetized them, we looked at whether or not they were voluntarily moving their limb. We also looked at their writing reflex, so place them on their back and see if they flip over into a normal position. We also monitored their heart rate with the Doppler ultrasound, so essentially a little probe that we put on the top of the back of the crab where we would expect the heart to be, and you can actually hear the heart beating when the probe is in that location. And ultimately, after the injection, the crabs that we believe to have passed quickly lost the heart rate, in addition to previously losing voluntary movement and the ability to flip back over. And so we attempted to recover them, and ultimately, heart rate did not come back in the individuals that were successfully euthanized. Interestingly, we did have one crab in the lidocaine group who did recover several hours later. And so we did not consider lidocaine to be a successful method of euthanasia for the species, whereas ivermectin and potassium chloride as a second step for euthanasia were effective. And so for the ivermectin and potassium chloride that you were giving, what were those dosages like and how fast was it able to be effective? So potassium chloride was 10 milliequivalents per kilogram, and that was essentially extrapolated from studies that were done in lobsters looking at similar doses. The ivermectin was 5 milligrams per kilogram, which was a dose that was higher than what was used to kill sea lice in salmon. And so something we would hope would be effective for the blue crabs. And it was also a measurable volume. So the ivermectin concentration that we had was relatively large for the size of the crab. So if you can imagine a 300 gram blue crab, the dosing can get challenging and you need to consider volume. And so five mix per kg was a low enough volume for us to be able to administer and hopefully also cause cessation of heartbeat. And then for lidocaine, we used 100 milligrams per kilograms, which would be way higher than any dose that you would give to a mammal. In mammals, the toxic dose is considered to be two to four mix per kg. And now I've heard there was a shortage of ivermectin due to the fact that people falsely thought it was a treatment for COVID. Did that impact your study? So that's an interesting question. Ivermectin was in the news a lot as a drug that was being used for treatment of patients that had COVID. And so I think there was a period of time where there was a shortage of that medication and difficulty in getting it. But for this project, we had ivermectin available to use. It wasn't something that we had difficulty acquiring. Okay, good. I'm glad we've moved past that stage where people are trying to self-medicate with ivermectin. So for our aquatic vets or aquatic animal health professionals who are listening to this who might have blue crabs at their facility or in their aquarium, what are your recommendations to them? So for general anesthesia of blue crabs, I had a lot of success with eugenol immersion. And so we used 500 parts per million of eugenol. The eugenol does need to be mixed as a stock solution with ethanol or another alcohol so that it can be soluble in water because it is an oil. Once you make the stock solution, then you add it to a known volume of system water with the crab in it. The crab will become anesthetized once it has fully stopped moving its legs voluntarily and has lost writing reflex, so it does not make an effort to flip itself back over. Then I would recommend following it up with a second step injection. And so that's where either five mix per kg of ivermectin or 10 milliequivalents per kilogram of potassium chloride can be injected directly into the heart or where the hemolymph would be present. In the paper that was published, there's a nice diagram showing exactly where that injection site should be. If you don't have eugenol or potassium chloride or euthanasia solution available, 
then I would recommend following with a physical technique to destroy where the brain would be present. Makes perfect sense. Is there anything else in the study that you wanted to cover? I think that is it. My main takeaway is just for listeners to have an appreciation for the vast biodiversity of aquatic invertebrates, understanding that although there are guidelines that are published by the American Veterinary Medical Association for euthanasia of aquatic invertebrates, they're so general and there's still so much we don't know. And so that's why these studies are important to be able to efficiently and safely relieve suffering in these species. So is there another species that you're currently working on? So following the blue crab euthanasia study, I actually traveled to the Galapagos Islands with Dr. Gregory Lubart, who was featured previously on your podcast as part of my residency. And during our time there, we also worked with Sally Lightfoot crabs, which are a really cool species of crab. I think they're named after a Caribbean dancer who was very agile, and the crabs are very agile. They were jumping between rocks on the shore and very impressive to watch. Sally Lightfoot crabs are also actually present in some aquariums and some zoos, so you may actually see one without having to travel too far. Well, thank you. That was super interesting and important research. I do want to transition to talking about the residency program you did because we have a lot of student listeners and a lot of folks interested in residency programs, and we haven't talked yet about NC State. So do you think you could just give an overview of what the residency program looks like and what facilities and organizations you work with? Definitely. So a residency in zoological medicine is essentially a three-year training program for veterinarians that are looking to specialize in zoo, aquarium, wildlife, or exotic animal medicine with an expectation to sit for an examination to become a board-certified specialist in the field through the American College of Zoological Medicine, or ACZM. So I went to North Carolina State University for my residency, and the residency is in zoological medicine, but there's a focus in aquatic animal medicine, depending on the year. So NC State offers a zoological medicine residency, and each year they either accept a more zoo-focused or more aquatics-focused resident and provide some different opportunities depending on what your focus is. So during my program, I spent time rotating through the exotic animal medicine service at the veterinary school at NC State. I spent some time rotating through the North Carolina Zoo. And as the aquatics focus resident, the last year and a half of the program, I spent the majority of my time between the three North Carolina aquariums, the Karen Beasley Sea Turtle Rescue and Rehabilitation Center, and the Center for Marine Sciences and Technology, or CMAST, which is the NC State Coastal Marine Science Research and Education Facility, and also the home base for the North Carolina Aquarium Vet Team, and home base for sea turtle and marine mammal stranding response and necropsy. As the aquatic resident, I also was able to go spend some time in California working with the National Marine Mammal Foundation in San Diego to learn about dolphins and sea lions. And then I was also working with the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalita, California for additional experience with wild pinnipeds, so seals and sea lions. In addition to clinical medicine, there's a lot of focus on research and teaching during the residency program through NC State. And part of that is because to credential or become considered qualified to sit for the ACZM board exam, you do need to be first author on at least three publications that are relevant to the field of zoological medicine. And at least two of them have to be prospective or retrospective scientific study of some sort. So throughout the residency, majority of my time was spent rotating through a lot of different aquatics opportunities, although I did get a really strong foundation in both exotic animal medicine and zoo medicine. And 
had an opportunity to do a lot of really cool and interesting research as well. Was there anything that was particularly surprising about your time in the residency program? It's interesting because I felt like my residency experience was both the longest three years and the fastest three years of my life. I felt like all the opportunities that you get to rotate through make it really interesting and you feel like you move from one location to the next every couple of weeks or every month or every couple months. And so that kind of goes by quickly. But at the same time, when you're trying to write five papers at the same time of being on clinics and teaching, it can go by very slowly. Yeah, I can imagine. I look forward to my future self doing exactly that. (laughs) Did you have a favorite species, terrestrial or aquatic, that you worked with during your residency? I really enjoyed working with sea turtles during my residency program. And for me, it was one of the main draws to the North Carolina State residency in particular, because they did offer an opportunity to work very closely with a sea turtle hospital. And I really learned a lot. And I was even able to do a research project with sea turtles, which is something that I had always been interested in doing. Oh, that's very exciting. I love sea turtles. They're so fun. They're the best. Do you have any recommendations for students who might be applying either next year or in the future of ways that they can continue improving their application? I think for zoological medicine residencies in general, because there is the expectation to sit for the board's exam and you do need to have some research experience in order to credential for the board's exam. If you can get any sort of research experience, doesn't need to be that you publish a paper, but as long as you've had some exposure to research, see if it's something that you really enjoy, and also get some experience in writing and study design. That can be really helpful and set you apart from other applicants. Also, just varying opportunities in zoological medicine. It's a unique field in that we're considered specialists, but our specialty is kind of everything. And so as far as I know, there's not really one residency program where you're going to spend three years working with the same species all day, every day. And so expecting to go into a program where you're going to do some exotics and some wildlife and some zoo and some aquatics, if that's what you're interested in, and just leaving those opportunities open and seeing where they'll take you is a good way to kind of set yourself up for a realistic experience during the residency. Is there anything else that you want to highlight about the program you think people should know about? My piece of advice for veterinary students who are interested in aquatics would be to not let anybody tell you that you can't do something that you're interested in. It's a very long road for most people. Vet school is four years. Your undergraduate before vet school is four years. And then working towards working in an aquarium or with aquatic species or even zoo species, You may be looking at multiple internships. If a residency is something you're interested, that's another three years. And kind of along the way, I had a surprising number of people to tell me about how competitive it was. You'll never get that internship. You'll never get that residency. You'll never get that job. And the truth is, if you don't go for it, you won't get it. So I will just say, don't let people tell you what you can and cannot do. And at least don't let it discourage you from applying, because if you don't apply, then you'll never have the opportunity. Such important words. I'll certainly keep them in mind as I start applying in the coming years. Alyssa, thank you so much for being here today on Aquadox. Thanks for having me. It was great to chat with you. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Aquadox. I'd like to thank Dr. Alyssa Monas for being on the show this week, as well as all of you, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in. Thank you to our sponsors, AAFE, the American Association of Fish Veterinarians, 
WAVMA, the World Aquatic Veterinary Medical Association, and the Cornell Wildlife Health Center for their continued support of Aquadocs. As always, check out our Facebook and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest Aquadocs news. And if you've got an extra moment, please like and follow us on Apple and Spotify and leave a review. I'm Michelle Greenfield-Feig. We'll see you next time here on Aquadocs.